It is an honor to be here this morning. I am appreciative of your pastor and his invitation, his risk to let a, a university president come and stand behind a pulpit. And some of you are already thinking, oh Lord, this is going to be boring. I need some help in here. I, I'm just a country preacher. So all I'm going to do is, is be a country preacher this morning. Is that all right? You okay with that? And, and, I, and, and I, this sermon... I. I'm excited to be able to preach this sermon in this context because I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes in a university setting, an audience does not know the proper way to respond to the Word of God. And I've been assured that you understand the proper way to respond to the Word of God. And so I'm looking for some encouragement and some proper response to the Word of God this morning, all right? So I'm going to do my job, I hope. You encourage me along the way here. We'll have a lot of fun as we walk through this. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, so open up your Bibles, and I'm going to jump right in. The music this morning was amazing, and so I appreciate all of the songs that were sung. The special that was sung up here, talking about how difficult it was in our trials, and it sets the scene perfectly for what we're talking about this morning. Chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews is about tribulation and troubles and endurance. Chapter 12 The word endurance is actually endures mentioned three times in these first three verses. It's talking about endurance. Anybody out there ever been in a place in your life where you needed a little bit of endurance? You ever been walking along the spiritual journey and it feels like you're running uphill and you're out of breath and you're huffing and puffing and you want to take a break and you just say, Lord, I need a second wind. I need some endurance. Have you ever been there? This passage this morning is for us. We have all been there. And this endurance that it's talking about flows through here. And then I can only imagine. I I was surprised you guys were singing my song. I mean, I'm just saying, I don't. I, you know, I'm just up on the scale a little bit there, but uh, the, the passage talks about looking only to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I can only imagine what it'll be like when I see Jesus. Now, if we had that song in the front of our mind every day, living our life all day long, how would we live our life and how would it change the way we react to certain things that happen, the way... So that song fits perfectly with this text. And and then our sister did the song that actually was quoting part of the text, looking only to Jesus and running the race. And So you set me up well this morning. I thank you. Praise God for it. Praise the Lord for working through with His Holy Spirit. In this passage, you have one command. It's let us run. In this passage, you have three participle phrases. Those three participle phrases are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's one. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That's two. And then looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's three. So that's how our text breaks down this morning as we walk through it is we've got a command that's set in the midst of three participle phrases. So as we begin to walk through those, we walk through number one, the cloud of witnesses. What is a cloud of witnesses? You'll have some people that will preach this text. You'll have some commentators that will talk about this text, and they will tell you it's almost as if you're envisioning that marathon at an Olympics where they're running that final portion of the race and they run inside the arena and all of the people on the outside are staring down on. And, and some commentators will say that's, that's the cloud of witnesses. Now, I don't agree with that interpretation. Let me tell you why. The second interpretation is the one I take. 
The second interpretation is this cloud of witnesses is not focused upon us, but it's a cloud of witnesses testifying to how great God is. Now, now the reason I like that interpretation better is because sometimes I think in our own lives, I know this is one of my my tendencies, is I want to focus on me. And I realize the more I focus on me, the more problems I have. And the more I focus on God, the less problems I have. And I believe in Hebrews chapter 11, if you look at that text, it talks about evidence of things not seen. When I hear the word evidence, I start thinking about those witnesses again. When I hear the word evidence, I start thinking about some of my favorite shows like CSI, Law and Order, some of those type things. And I start thinking about the fact that they'll bring these witnesses in, they'll testify, this is what I saw. And then I start looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and I start saying, what's in there? Well, the word by faith is in there 22 times. By faith. And all of these Old Testament examples are telling us that by faith, God did special things through them for our understanding, for our encouragement, for our faith. And so then I come to Hebrews chapter 12 and I look and it says here there's a cloud of witnesses. And what are those witnesses doing if they're not testifying that God is faithful, you can trust him? Now that's the theme this morning. God is faithful, you can trust him. So if I say to you, God is faithful, what should you say back to me? So we look here at Hebrews chapter 11, the text, to see about our witnesses. When we look at our witnesses, we start with Abel. You know, sometimes preachers want to get into this prosperity mode. They want to say to you, you get saved, everything's going to be okay. You get saved, it's all going to be a bed of roses. And we come to Hebrews chapter 11, and the first person we see here is Abel. What do you know about Abel? He died. Anybody want to sign up for his journey? His brother killed him. Now, he offered a more acceptable sacrifice, but why did his brother kill him? I don't know. Maybe because he was Abel. I don't, that's just a bad joke. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a bad one, but it, it made you laugh, so it worked. All right. Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. His brother killed him. He made Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if Abel walked across this morning as a witness to us and came up these steps and began to walk across, and Abel looked at us, I think what Abel would tell us is God is faithful. Who's next? You look at Enoch. Enoch, by faith, was taken up so that he would not see death. He was walking with God and And we like to say it casually as though he was walking with God and God said, you know what, you're closer to my house than you are to yours, just come on home with me. Now, if Enoch were to walk in these doors this morning and to walk up on this stage, I think what Enoch would tell us is God is faithful. Do you believe that this morning? You move next to Noah. Noah's one of my favorites in all of the scriptures because I'm a country boy. And Noah, I believe, is a country boy. Noah, the New Testament says, is a preacher of righteousness. He's a preacher of righteousness that was commissioned to build an ark in a time where it says that there was no rain, there was no rain falling of this source, there was going to be a flood, and he was going to survive the flood through the ark, and so he's a preacher of righteousness, and everybody wants to measure success somehow on the numbers, right? If you're not growing, something's wrong, right? Think about Noah. The only people that believed his message were his children and the people they married. Success should not be determined by the number of people that follow a message. Success is determined by the message and its faithfulness to God. And Noah here is preaching a message and people aren't buying it. 
It's okay. His calling is to be faithful to God. It's not to be popular among the people. And here's one of the reasons I love Noah. He's a country boy. He lived under the same roof with pigs and chickens and hens and roosters and goats, all under the same roof. That makes him a little bit country, doesn't it? He lived under the same roof with his children and their spouses. I'm saying where I grew up, it happened. Noah had a boat on wood blocks in his backyard that he couldn't get to water for like 60 years. I'm just saying. Now, the only argument you might can make is that Noah wasn't a country boy. He was a hillbilly because Noah parked his boat on a hill, and then he went and got drunk and naked. But that's another sermon for another time. I'm not going there this morning. Noah was commissioned to build an ark because it was going to rain. He said, it's going to rain. People said, what's rain? You're crazy. So I'm trusting God. If Noah walked through that door this morning and he walked across the stage, I think Noah would look at us and say, God is faithful. Abraham. He left and went out to a land he didn't know. To a land he hadn't seen. Many of us in our lives have been called to take steps out to go places that we don't have the end destination. The GPS hasn't told us the final location yet. It's just telling us one turn at a time, and we are to trust that the ultimate divine navigator is faithful to get us to where we're supposed to be. Abraham was in that spot. He left. He never saw everything finished. He never saw the children of Israel living in the promised land. But from heaven, he knows what happened and that God fulfilled all of the promises. We see it in the Old Testament. If Abraham were to walk through that door this morning, what do you think Abraham would tell us as he stood up here? But he would look at all of us and he would say to us, God is faithful. Do you believe it this morning? If you looked at Abraham after he had offered Isaac up, he took his son, the son of promise, The sun that he had been promised would turn into the stars of the sky, the sands of the ocean. And he took the wood and he took the fire and he was obedient all the way to lay him on the altar. And he raised up the knife and as he did, he didn't see that perfect substitution that had been caught by the horns in the thicket behind him. And as the angel stopped him, he understood God's plan a little bit better. What do you think Abraham would tell you about that incident? He rose up early in the morning to do what God told him to do, and God was faithful the entire way. He went up the hill. He looked back, and he said, we will return. He didn't know how. We don't know how either. Sometimes there are things in life we can't understand it. We don't know how, but we must trust that God is faithful. Think about Sarah. Received the power to conceive a child. Way past the age where it would have been wise for her to conceive a child. Way past the age where everybody would have said it's appropriate, it's okay, this is possible, this is something to happen. She even laughed when God told her, and yet what happened? She conceived a child. If Sarah were to walk up here this morning and to testify, I think Sarah would say to us, God is faithful. Think about Isaac. He, by faith, blessed Jacob and Esau. You think about Jacob, who by faith blessed the sons of Joseph. You think about Joseph. Oh, what a story we have in Joseph. 
Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, ascended to a high position to only be falsely accused and falsely imprisoned, to then ascend and rise again in the prison, and then to be elevated to a position where he finally, at the end of it, understood God's plan all along the way, every step preparing him to be able to have the food in the right place during a time of famine. And Joseph, what does he do? What does he say? He says, when God visits you, you carry my bones away. He looked forward into God's promises and still trusted him because in his life, God had made himself real and known in a unique way. And if Joseph were to walk across this stage, I think he would look at all of us today and he would say to us, God is faithful. You You think about Moses. Moses in the text says here he was born, he was hidden by his parents, he was adopted. He had the title, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That is one of the top three or four titles in all of Egypt. He had all the money that you could possibly want. He had the finest linens. He had all the material possessions that anybody could dream of. And he gave it all up because he wanted to follow God. And he said it was better to suffer reproach with the people of God than to have temporary pleasures in this world and temporary titles in this world. And we would look at him today and society would say to him, you are crazy to give up possessions, to give up power, to give up titles, and to serve God. You shouldn't do that. And our entire political systems work the opposite direction. Gain it all. Get it all. Talk about how great. He said, no, Lord, why send me? I'm a man who can't even speak well. Moses, if he showed up this morning and he walked through the door, He came and he looked at us. What do you think he'd say? God is faithful. You can trust him. Think about the children of Israel. The plagues, Moses, that last plague, the meaning of that last plague, where if you don't have the blood of the lamb covering your doorpost, your firstborn son is going to be required. You think about the implications biblically in a whole for that. If God's firstborn son's blood is not covering you, then your firstborn's blood is going to be required. There's implications there. The Passover lamb that then was throughout the Passover all throughout the future is that we are covered by blood. That is by the remission of sin is only by the shedding of blood. And here that's being painted on a doorpost and seen foreshadowing the blood of Jesus that covers all of our sins. And they leave after this amazing foreshadowing of God's grace. And they're going over to the Red Sea. And they get to the Red Sea. And they go, we can't go any farther. And they look back. And there's the armies of Pharaoh. And they say to Moses, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here just to die in the wilderness? Think about it. All those miracles. And yet still lack of faith. Isn't it just like us? All the little miracles God does in our lives, all the guidance, all the direction, all the things he does, and yet still there are days where we get up and we are just like the children of Israel, and you bring us out here to die. Moses raises that staff, and God says to those waters, move out of the way a little bit. And they begin to step across on ground. Not muddy ground. Not sloppy, wet slimy, algae-filled ground. But God even told the algae, get out of the way. He told that wet dirt, dry it up. 
And they walked across on dry ground. And then they went to the other side, and God said, I got a little plan for those chariots and those horses and that army of Pharaoh too, who began to chase in without having the faith, the by faith that the children of Israel had. And then they come to the water, and God said to that water, I'm not restraining you anymore. Take them out. Now, if the children of Israel, right after that event, because we know they were still faithless at other times, but right after that event, if they walked across through here one by one, what do you think they'd say to us? God is faithful. I think they would. And I think we should. They continue on. We have our whole Old Testament. It continues on in this passage. Oh, continuing, talking about by faith. It moves from there to talk about, by faith, the walls of Jericho. Oh, how would you have liked to have been there at the walls of Jericho? Joshua, what's our battle plan? We're going to march around these walls. I got this shofar. You're going to blow it. And these mighty walls are going to fall down. Joshua, we need to talk about your 10-year strategic vision for a moment. Joshua, brother, I think we need to have a lesson in architecture and in engineering and in physics. Sound waves do not destroy brick walls. And Joshua said, oh, but my God can. And he obeyed God, and he walked around these walls. And in a miracle of only biblical God-sized proportions, the walls fell down. What do you think would happen if Joshua walked across this morning? Joshua 1, 8 and 9, be of no fear, be of courage. If he walked across this morning, I think he would look at us and he would say to us all and live in our daily lives, God is faithful. What about Rahab? Now, maybe you're here this morning and you got some things in your past. You're carrying a little bit of baggage. You say, God can't use me. You don't know what I've done. Why do you think Rahab's in Hebrews chapter 11? Why do you think when it talks about Rahab in Hebrews chapter 11, it says there, Rahab the prostitute? Why did it remind us that this was Rahab, not Rahab the woman of faith that welcomed the spies alone? It didn't do hagiography. It didn't paint a story and tell only the partial truth of the great side of Rahab. It said to us, Rahab the prostitute. Why do we have that in the text? I think we have that in the text because we need to realize it's not how much sin we have in our life. It's not the depths of our depravity, but it is the boundless extent of God's grace that covers all of that. So if you're here this morning, you're looking back at your past, and you're saying in your past, I've got things you don't know about. That's okay. Because i got a God that can cover all of it. When he stretched out his arms and said, it is finished, it was finished. Every sin was covered for those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Rahab, the prostitute, welcomed the spies. What happened after that? 
Did she just survive? Did she just live life? No, because the God we serve does things even greater than that so that he'll get the glory. She married into the family so that she would have as a child Boaz. Boaz, who is prominent in the book of Ruth, because Ruth was a Moabite, a person that had been rejected, a person that came from God's wash pot, as it's called. And Ruth, that Moabite, came back with her mother-in-law. And Boaz, whose mother was also a prostitute, somebody that had been talked bad, looked across and said, God's got a plan. And Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer, foreshadowing Jesus Christ as the kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz and Rahab the prostitute and Ruth all end up in the lineage of King David. And even more important than that, they end up in the lineage of King Jesus. Now you tell me a God that can take a prostitute and put her into the lineage of King Jesus, the King of all eternity forevermore. That's the God that we serve this morning. So Rahab walks in the door. What does she say? We're not, we're not saying Rahab walked in the door right now. We're just saying, if Rahab walked in the door, what would she say? God is faithful. You can trust him. Oh, it goes to Gideon. Oh, we could talk about what Gideon did too with the 300. It goes to Barak. It talks about Barak. You may not remember the story of Barak quite as well as some of the others, but oh, in Judges, he looks out, and he's been told to go take the army, and there's 900 iron chariots, and he looks out with earthly eyes, and he says, we can't defeat 900 iron chariots. But God said, go. He didn't go. The text records how Deborah, Deborah, whose name means honeybee, comes up to Barak, whose name means lightning. I like lightning. That would be a cool name. In fact, I liked it so much. I used to do karate, and in my karate schools, I had a competition team. My competition team's name was White Lightning. I did. I had a lightning bolt right down the side of my leg because I, I give the other people a hard time. I'm, I'm as fast as lightning. I'm gonna hit you. And you're not even gonna know what hit you. It's gonna just knock you out, right? White lightning. Not the alcohol now. Just that other stuff. It's it's white lightning. And, and Barak, a man's man, the general of the army, was scared to go because he saw something he couldn't defeat in his power. Oh, and along came Deborah and said, it's not in your power. And said to Barak, God said, go, you go. And Barak said, only if you go with me. And he pulled out his man card, and he turned it in, and he put on some skinny, bedazzled jeans, and he wiggled his way into them, and he lost every man point as they were fleeing from his shoulders at that particular moment. And what did God do? God gave him the victory. A flood came. The river overflowed. Those 900 chariots of iron that went out into the valley became boat anchors. And those horses began to drift away in the current, and the army was completely routed. Now, if he were to show up this morning, and if he were to walk across the stage, what do you think he would say to us? God is faithful. You can trust him. You think about Samson. You talk about somebody that was messed up. You talk about somebody that violated everything that, that God had told him not to do. He did it. But at the end of his life, he still was used by God to pull down those great pillars. If Samson were here, I think Samson, 
even ashamed of all of his mistakes, would walk across and tell us, God is faithful, you can trust him. You think about Jephthah, you think about David and the giant that he slayed, all that went on in David's life. You think about Samuel, you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You think about Daniel. It talks here about those he kept through fire. Perhaps that's the fiery furnace. It talks about those where he closed the mouth of lions. Perhaps that's Daniel and the lion's den. Oh, Daniel, in his testimony of faithfulness, praying for 70 years that God would allow the Babylonian captivity to end, and finally he did. Daniel, with all the things that he saw, with the dreams that he had, with the lions that he encountered. If Daniel walked through those doors this morning, I think Daniel would come up here and say to us, God is faithful. Now that's our witnesses. That's our first preposition. We got a cloud of witnesses contained here in God's word that we need to read, that we need to understand, that we need to meditate on, that we need to memorize because God gave us the Old Testament of real historic events that happened as a testimony to me and to you to say, I'm a real God with real power that loves you, that has a plan, and in your life I will demonstrate over and over and over again that God is faithful and that you can trust Him. That's where we are. So now we move to the second phrase. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You think about that. The weights that we're laying aside are contrasted to the sin which clings so closely. So it's saying to us that there are things that hold us back in life sometimes that may not be necessarily sinful, but they keep us from running the race with endurance. So in my mind, I start thinking about all of the material possessions, all of the worries of the world, all of the things that we try to strap onto our backs as we try to run the race with endurance. And as we're running, it's almost like we have a backpack to a U-Haul, and that U-Haul is lugging us down, and we're trying to run for God, and it's one labored step after another, and we never can get any momentum or speed up, and it's saying, take it off. Lay it aside. So I think about our track athletes. Anybody in here like to run? Oh, I think you people are crazy. I I, I run so that I can eat. Because if I run, I get to eat more, and I like to eat. So it's all about eating for me. It's not not just about running. But here, what it's talking about is it's laying aside the weights. When you run, you don't run in what I have on this morning. You, You run... Most people run. They run in these little shorts that are only intended for running. I mean, you don't wear them anywhere else because there's not nearly enough of them. And you, you just, they're just you, these little light shirts. They, they might take a, a band and put their phone on it so they have some music or something, but, but they don't carry a big wallet. They don't carry everything because you want to be light. You don't want to be weighed down. You go in the army, they might tell you and make you do a backpack hike or something at some point in time. But, but even if you talk to them, they say it's great feeling just to get the backpack off. It's saying lay aside those weights. May not be sinful. May not be something you could point to and say that violates the word of God, but it still may be holding you back. I think about our baseball team. You get into the on-deck circle, and the pitcher is pitching to the batter that's at the plate, and you take these weights and you put them on the bat. And these weights that you put on the bat, you swing it around, you get loose, you even pretend you're swinging at it. And and our team, they have a sledgehammer over at Cedarville, and I don't know why, but they do. They have a sledgehammer, and they put a sledgehammer on their shoulder, and they'll practice swinging a sledgehammer while they're watching the pitcher pitch to the batter. 
Now, what would happen if one of those guys took that and walked up to the plate? I imagine our coach would begin to educate him more accurately in the ways of the Lord. His voice would elevate. His brow would furrow. And he would, in a high projection, tell the player, put the sledgehammer down and pick up the bat. You don't hit the ball with a sledgehammer. And I think what the writer's telling us today Put the sledgehammer down and pick up the bat. Get rid of the weights. Lay them aside. Don't let them hold you back. We are here to run the race with endurance. I, I'm at Cedarville University, a great place to serve the Lord. And at that place of service, we move students in every year. And we move them out every summer. And when they move in, most of them can come and bring all that they're going to move in in a car. They'll pull a car in, they'll pop the trunk, they'll prop the back on the SUV, we'll help them unload it so they never have to touch a box. Off into the room it goes, they can set it up, and then they're done. It's not all of their possessions, it's only a small portion of their possessions. Now, in some cases, you'll have some of the ladies move in and they'll bring a couple of U-Hauls behind that car, and I don't know where they're putting it all, but, but some of them, they still don't bring it all. Now, why is it that they only bring a portion of what they own? It's because we keep the room small enough they can't fit the rest of it, right? But it's also because they're not there forever. And they know this is a temporary time frame, and then we move back out. It is a temporary time frame, and then we go back home for summer. They understand that this is not permanent. And so I think what the writer is telling us here is, do you understand that this is not your permanent home? Do you understand that this earth, that this life is not the final destination, but the final destination is eternity in heaven with God and living with Him forever? Now, if we understand that that's the final destination, this is just a temporary status that we are living in, that we are pilgrims passing through this earth, and our final destination is in glory with Jesus, we don't have to take everything with us. We can endure unfairness in this life because we understand He's going to make it right in the next. We can understand that when we do things differently, when we react to criticism differently, when we take injustice differently, when we forgive people differently, we are pointing to the fact that this is not the end game, but that is. We are pointing to the fact that we understand it's all about Jesus and it's all about eternity. Now, do you live like it? I don't know that I do. Not all the time. Something happens to me and I go, that's not fair. I don't like that. But then I stop and think, God, what's your purpose in it? What are you up to, God? And the writer's saying, lay it aside. And then he's saying to us, the sin which clings so closely. You know how it is. You get wrapped up in a sin. Whatever your sin may be, you get wrapped up in a sin. Perhaps your sin is a sin of faithlessness. This sin here is singular. And so some will say it's the sin of faithlessness. You don't have faith. But others will say, well, you know what? A lack of faith leads to a multitude of sins. It's the lack of believing what God's Word says that leads us to do all sorts of idolatry and put all sorts of things on the throne of our hearts so that we pursue them rather than God. And so perhaps you get a little lie started, and you start that little lie, and that little lie moves into a bigger lie, and that bigger lie moves into a bigger lie. And next thing you know, you're so entangled in that lie that it's like vines are holding you, and you can't get loose of your own lie that you have fabricated. 
reciprocated. And the writer's saying, take out that spiritual machete and get rid of the vines and cut them loose. The sin that clings so closely. The sin that entangles us and holds us back. Those sins that we give into, whether those sins may be material pleasures or material possessions, or whether those sins may be reputation and what people think about us, or whatever our sinful struggles may be, the text is saying to us, you get rid of the weight. You get rid of the sin which is holding you back and clinging to you so closely. You get rid of it and you run with endurance looking only to Jesus. That's what it's telling us. Sometimes we look really awkward when we start running because we're tangled. And I think back to that movie, which I've only seen the TV version, but I think back to that movie, Forrest Gump. I think back to a little boy with braces on his legs. Which, by the way, you'll notice as I do this, I, I'm bow-legged. Can you all see that? They used to say about me, he walks with his knees in parentheses. So I relate to Forrest a little bit here. And, and he had those braces on, and the girl was there, and those boys were making fun of him and being mean bullies. And, and she looks at him, and she says, run, Forrest. Get away. Go. Run, Forrest, run. And Forrest starts running. And you remember how it looked? I mean, he's got this awful-looking, weird, straight-leg thing going on. And he, he's not going anywhere. Not fast, anyway. And then as he runs with that awkward running gait, eventually pins begin to pop out. Brackets begin to fall off. And his stride begins to smooth. And next thing you know, he's running away from those bicycles as though he is an Olympic runner. And he says in his own words, I ran like the wind. I ran. I think that's what our writer's pointing to this morning. Is he saying to us, lay the side the stuff holding you back? Get rid of all that stuff that's entangling you? And he moves from that transition of that prepositional phrase right into that command, which is let us run. And he's saying, run. Now that's a command. The command is to run. You can't sit on the sidelines. You can't sit on the couch. You can't stay at the water station. The command is to run. If we're going to run, we have to start. And it may be ugly, but run. The Bible tells us many times, just do it. Run. Go. Get started. The Bible doesn't say here, let us run with picture-perfect form. The Bible doesn't say here, let us run as fast as the wind. The Bible doesn't say here, let us run faster than anybody else. The Bible says, let us run with endurance. What does that mean? Keep running. Start running wherever you are, and then keep running with endurance. And you say, oh, but it's ugly. Not to God. Oh, but it's slow. That's okay. Oh, but it's awkward. That's all right. You keep running. Let us run with endurance. So what is it that's holding you back? What is it that that's keeping you from running? What is it that has entangled you? What is it that's slowing you down? And, and I think about some of the things, and I think, I think first maybe fear. Oh, that's why we have the cloud of witnesses. Don't fear. God is faithful. You can trust Him. 
I think about the things in our past. I think about Rahab. And I want to say to you there that the devil will remind you of your past all the time. But when the devil reminds you of your past, you need to remind him of his future. I'm going to say it again. When the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Because all he's wanting to do is keep you from serving God, keep you from doing something for God, keep you from leading people to Christ, keep you from having God get the glory that God deserves. And he's trying to take you down with him. He's trying to take as many as he can with him and deceive you in any way possible. And so when he brings up those things, but you can't, God can. Remind him of his future. You know, I drove over here this morning. When I did, I was looking out the front windshield. Every now and then, I would glance into a rearview mirror. I had this truck that was behind me that was a little bit close, so I was glancing into the rearview mirror more often than I usually glance into the rearview mirror, but I was just glancing into the rearview mirror. I don't drive looking into the rearview mirror because I'd have a wreck. I drive looking through the front windshield because it's big, and that is what the writer is telling us when he's saying, run with endurance and look only to Jesus. He's saying, don't focus on the rearview mirror of where you've been. It's okay for us to glance at where we've been to give God praise and glory for what he's done in our life. It's not okay to stare in the rearview mirror because then you're going to wreck your future. You look through the front glass, you glance at the rearview mirrors, and you give God the praise for everything that happened. Let us run with endurance. If I were to mention running with endurance this morning to you, how many of you would think of a man named Cliff Young? Man, I've heard of Cliff Young. Cliff Young, at the time of this race, April 27, 1983, was 60-plus years old. He signed up to run an ultra-marathon 550 miles from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. He had false teeth. He didn't like to run with his false teeth because he said they vibrated and chattered in his mouth, and so he ran with his false teeth out, so his gums just flapped in the wind. He ran with his rubber muck boots on because that's what he ran when he was gathering up the sheep or other things. And he walked up to register for this ultra marathon and everybody began to laugh because his running wasn't necessarily as pretty as everybody else's running. But Cliff Young had this shuffle. It was a unique shuffle, which they've now named after him. It didn't take as much energy and he just kept shuffling along and all these runners left and they left him and he kept shuffling along and... And, and Cliff Young, I have to tell you ahead of time, Cliff Young won the race. Not only did he win the race, but he ran this race in five days, 14 hours, and 35 minutes, which took two days off the previous record time. You say, how did a man with a weird shuffle take two days off the previous record? Well, Cliff Young didn't know you were supposed to stop and sleep at night. So the first night, Cliff Young just kept shuffling right on through the night. Everybody else stopped and went to bed. He just kept right on shuffling. Second night, he was tired. He needed a little bit of rest. He'd sleep for a few hours. He'd get back up and shuffle on. Cliff Young took two days off the record. Now, I'm not telling you to burn yourself out or wear yourself out, but what I am telling you is that most of us aren't burning ourselves out because we're reading the fine print of the Bible. It's usually the other stuff that's distracting us and burning us out. It's not the spiritual endeavors of our life. And so I want to say to you that even if your running is ugly, even if your gait is a shuffle, even if it's labor intensive for you, we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
Now, there's an important point there, too, in that we are to run the race that is set before us. My race is my race. Your race is your race. I can't run your race, and you can't run my race. And you don't need to look at how I'm running and say, I'm going to run like that. You need to look to Jesus and only to Jesus and run your race set before you. Your gate may be different. Your destination is going to be the same because we're going to all be in heaven, but you may take a different path to get there. You may take a different route. You're going to encounter different people. The people you're going to meet, I may never meet. The people you need to share that Jesus is Lord with are not the same people I may need to share it with, but that's why we all have different races. Run your race. You say, well, I, I can't run like so-and-so. That's right. God's got so-and-so to run that race. He doesn't need you to run that one. He needs you to run yours. So we run with endurance. That's our command, the race that is set before us. And then we get to that third participle phrase, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at what it says. Who for the joy that was set before him. Have you ever thought about the cross, the struggle, the rebukes, the crown of thorns? The whipping, the spitting, the rejection as joy. Jesus knew what he was getting into. And he calls it the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? It wasn't all those things. It was knowing That by the death of the sinless God-man on the cross as a substitute for my sin and your sin, that blood of the doorpost that covers us when we repent and believe, that it was the joy of reconciling mankind to the God who created them. It was the joy of understanding the praise and the worship and the glory of a reunited person in Christ where God sees Jesus and not us and we are reunited with our Creator and that was the joy. Now, in our culture, we try to make the gospel something that's hatred, but the gospel is not hatred. The gospel is joy. The gospel is being reunited with your creator. The gospel is the good news. The gospel is our obligation, our race to run, to get that news out to the ends of the earth. The joy that was set before him. Look at what he did. He endured. So we see there in verse 1, we run with endurance. We see in verse 2 that Jesus example, and Jesus endured the cross, we see in verse 3 that we considered him who endured, and we understand that that's why we run with endurance. We're looking to the great example, Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is he seated? It's because it's over. It's done. When I sit down here in a few minutes, I'm done. It's finished. Sermon's over. Well, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, he said, it's done. On the cross, he said, it's finished. That means to me and to you that you cannot add works to what Jesus has already done because he's already accomplished it all and there is nothing you need to add. 
It means that you can't trust in anything else like your own works to get to heaven because you look only to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And if it's perfect, there's nothing we can do to make it better. It means we don't work. We don't try to be good enough. We don't try to get good enough to come to God. We start our shuffle and our run, as ugly as it may be, in a relationship with our Creator because He's already accomplished it all. He has finished it all. And our obligation is just to run my race to run your race and to run it with endurance before God Almighty, looking to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. Are you trusting in something else? My intellect, my personality, my good looks. I don't have any of those. I don't have to worry about it. But material possessions, reputation, bank account. What are you trusting in? Are you trying to tip the scales into your favor with enough good works to where you think you're okay and you might just slide by? Because the Bible says the standard's perfection and one evil deed makes you guilty of the whole law. It is Jesus. And only Jesus. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. And that's where we're looking. Because he's seated. At the right hand of the throne of God. Some of you may be here this morning. And you may say, you know, I haven't really been looking to Jesus. I've been looking at myself. I've been looking at my own works. I've been looking at my own stuff. I've been trusting in the relationship with the church. I've been trusting in mom and dad and mom and dad's spirituality. I've been trusting in my friends. I've been trusting in something else. But if I'm honest, I understand I haven't been trusting in Jesus in Jesus alone. If that's you, then this morning, I think it's the time that you come forward and say, I am trusting and looking to Jesus and Jesus alone as the founder and the perfecter of my faith. Now, that may be some of us here this morning, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not running. We were running for a while, and then that hill got steep, and that water station came along, and we're still sitting there talking to the people at the water station taking a sip. We may have gotten tired and sat down on the couch and said, I'm going to watch somebody else run for a little while, and we clicked the TV on, or we may have decided, I, I've, done my, I've done my race, I'm done, I'm finished, but we're not finished till we go to glory, and so there's still race yet to be, to be run, and so as long as we're breathing, we should be running, and maybe you're here, and you need to say, i got to lay it aside so I can run, i got to get rid of the sin so I can run, or I just need to get up and get started, whether my gate's ugly or whether it looks good, I've got to run, and I've got to run with endurance, and if you're here this morning God's saying to you it's time to run do business with God and whether you need to lay it aside get rid of the sin or whether you need to trust in Jesus what do we take away and what do we remember but we must remember that God is faithful and you can trust him when the hill gets steep when our breath gets short when our energy is down when depression sets in, when we are tired, we look to God and we remember God is faithful and you can trust Him. When our workers reject us, when our friends betray us, when everything goes the opposite direction, we remember as people of the book that God is faithful and you can trust Him. Go to the Lord in prayer. 
Oh, God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. We thank you for your church. But most of all, we thank you for your son who died on a cross to save us from our sins. We thank you for your grace which covers us, Lord, in all of our shortcomings. And God, today I pray that you convict us, that you challenge us, that you encourage us, that you help us to run the race you have set before us. And God, if we have stumbled, if we have fallen, help us to get up and help us to run. Not for our glory, Lord, but for yours. For it's in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that I pray.